This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Kristen Srewer, and you are listening to episode 68. Today's guest is a woman who holds many titles, social entrepreneur, global health strategist, advocate for women and girls, and the former Miss District of Columbia. Sarah Hillware is a force who has overcome fear to take risks, escaped domestic violence as a child, and is breaking down gender inequality. In today's episode, we talk about equity, equality, intersectionality, how she started an incredible global health organization called Girls Health Ed, and what she is doing now in her role as the Deputy Director of Women in Global Health. Sarah's background, tenacity, passion, and willingness to take risks are all part of her story and have driven her to lead important global change. I hope you love my conversation with Sarah. Sarah, welcome to the Illuminate podcast. I'm really excited to have you here today. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks so much, Kristen, for having me. Sarah, you are quite a force in the global health space. And so that's really why I wanted to bring you on. You have done a number of really incredible elements of work throughout your career that I thought that our listeners should hear a lot more about today. Uh, Thanks so much for for having me. And I'm I'm just delighted to be here and uh, to be able to share a little bit with your listeners. Sarah, you are currently the Deputy Director of Women in Global Health. That's correct. Yes. But before that, you have had a really fascinating career leading you into that work. So maybe you can tell me a little bit about what you were doing before you came into the women in global health role. Yeah. So I've, I've had, um, I like to say a non-traditional path. Um, and, and, and I really do like to emphasize that, um, especially for young professionals who often, um, you know, when, when they kind of come to me for advice or, um, you know, when they're asking about, um, you know, how, how to tell their stories, I think oftentimes people think that they need to follow a specific path. And um, I always like to just come back to the fact that I did not. Um, so for me, I actually um, thought I was going to go uh, to medical school. I was uh, pre-med and I ended up having a couple of transformative experiences that actually led me um, to global health. Um, one actually, uh, was when I ended up leading a medical mission, um, to Ecuador and we worked alongside local, um, uh, healthcare workers, um, to really, um, really provide health education to the community. And, um, you know, also, um, you know, just really listen to the community and find out what their needs were, even if they were outside of the health sector. And so, one experience that really struck me um, was when I was actually working alongside 
um, a nurse who was doing HPV screenings because at the time cervical cancer was the number two killer of women um, in Ecuador. Um, you know, she was talking to a patient um, in, in, in indigenous language in, in Quechua. Um, and the, the, the woman basically told her that, you know, the reason that she'd never been um, for, for any um, HPV screenings or, you know, really, really any, um, any gynecological visits except for when she had her children um, is because she had to ask um, permission from her husband. And she had to essentially, um, you know, really, I mean, she didn't have agency over her, over her body or uh, over her health. And so, um, you know, she, she really did have to um, get permission uh, to go uh, to, to see anyone. And, and uh, she was also forbidden from seeing a male um, healthcare professional. So, you know, that, that was one thing. And the second thing was that, um, you know, if she were to be positive, she would be blamed, um, you know, by, by her husband. And so she just ended up not going at all. And so that experience for me, um, just really led me to want to work on issues that were outside of the clinic, so to speak. Um, so some of the, um, sociocultural economic, issues that, that, that really impacted people's health. And then domestically, I, I'm actually from Washington, D.C. by way of Louisiana, um, or, or should I say from Louisiana by way of Washington, D.C. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the other experience I had was, um, you know, my, my mom uh, and, and my siblings and I actually escaped domestic violence. Um, and that's a uh, part of the reason why we ended up moving to Washington, D.C. And then I ended up staying in the area for my studies. Um, but, you know, through that experience, I ended up, my, my life completely changed, you know, went from living in a four bedroom home to living in, you know, basically a, you know, one, one bedroom apartment with, uh, you know, with my family. And, um, you know, and then I, um, you know, I, I ended up living in, um, in, in Southeast Washington, DC, where the poverty rates were, were pretty high. And when I went to university, um, I, I ended up actually, volunteering with an organization called Health Leads um, in, in Children's National Medical Center in, in the Southeast Branch, um, working alongside uh, physicians, working alongside nurses, um, and, you know, medical assistants and other healthcare professionals um, to really help patients in, in, in my neighborhood navigate the healthcare system and, and also get connected to resources um, that, that they needed that, that were not necessarily health related. So I was helping patients get connected to things like, um, you know, uh, SNAP, right, where, you know, they, they were able to feed their families or helping them get transportation vouchers to get to and from the hospital or helping them sign up for health insurance. And so um, just, just having these experiences when I was studying, um, you know, made me actually end up changing uh, my, my, my educational focus to global health, um, where I was able to focus a lot on um, some of those other factors that ended up making people sick, right, that, that were outside of, um, you know, just what, what you would normally think of as, as health. And so from there, um, you know, I was really determined to, uh, to, to work in global health when I graduated. I, I then ended up um, having an internship at the World Food Program, ended up working there for a little while, um, then ended up uh, doing consulting work for another UN agency, um, and then after that, actually, it was pretty hard for me to find um, a job. You know, I, I didn't have a ton of experience. I had some experience, but, you know, wasn't wasn't really yet at, at the stage where um, where, where I had a, a specific focus area. Um, and so I actually ended up working in the private sector for a little over a year. Um, and, and I actually worked in advertising. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, so I ended up working in advertising. Um, and what that gave me actually was a really, um, a really great foundation um, to be able to then use those skills that I learned in advertising about proposal writing, about client management, about communications and marketing, mm -hmm. um, to then get my first job at the World Bank, um, where I ended up leading uh, communications and stakeholder engagement and also managing the community of practice um, for our uh, clean cooking program, which was a cross-cutting program between health, gender, and climate change um, and, and energy as well. And so because I had that private sector experience along with my UN agency experience um, that, I, that I had prior to that, I actually ended up developing a unique skill set um, that a lot of people who had only worked in multilaterals or who had only worked in nonprofits or government um, didn't necessarily have. So because I embraced that non-traditional path, I ended up being able to have um, just some really tangible skills uh, that, that a lot of my other colleagues uh, didn't come with. I can see that. That's incredible, Sarah. There's so many things I want to dig into that you just shared. Um, thanks for sharing about your background and sort of how you ended up in Southeast DC and how that has helped shape your career. Just curious, you know, you, you jumped in, you took this, ex this horrible experience that you had and brought it back to volunteering and to figuring out how to give back to your community. What kind of resources did you feel like you and your family needed after escaping that domestic violence? And what did you feel like the system needed to pr help help support in what ways did you feel like the system needed to help support you? Yeah. And those are really great questions. Um, I'm actually really glad you asked that because, um, you know, one of the things that I found, um, and, you know, just kind of looking back on the situation is that my mom didn't have as much, uh, financial know-how, um, you know, as probably she, she, she should have at that point. Um, you know, and I think that when you come from a domestic violence situation, when you come from essentially being in, a household with, um, you know, with two, um, you know, two, two parents and two, two people kind of managing finances. And then all of a sudden being on your own, um, with three children, you know, that's extremely difficult. Um, so I think, you know, financial literacy would have helped. Um, but I also think that, you know, there, there were, there were some other factors as well. Um, you know, housing the, that, that was definitely a challenge. And also for my mom, you know, an, another thing that, um, was, was, was challenging for us is to basically be able to, um, for, for her to have a full-time job and be able to afford childcare. Um, you know, because my, my siblings were very young at the time. They're, they're much younger than me. Um, and, and, and so oftentimes, you know, I, I was the one, um, kind of, you know, looking after them and, and, um, you know, and, and, and when that wasn't possible, then, you know, we would have to find, um, creative arrangements with neighbors <laughs> or creative arrangements with, you know, with, with, um, with, with teachers or, 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 or whomever, um, to, to try to ensure that my, that my siblings were looked after. And, and so I think, you know, just really the underlying issue was gender inequality, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there, there weren't structures in place, um, that, that, that permitted my mom as a single mom to have childcare, um, and to be able to have, um, you know, access to, um, financial resources and, and, and things of that nature. Um, and, and so, you know, I think it, it, it does really come back to ultimately this, um, inequitable system. Um, and, and, you know, I think just really looking back on, um, a lot of the struggles and, and, and the challenges that we had, 
Um, I, I'm, I'm really not sure if, if we would have had them, you know, if my mom were, you know, instead of being a, a black woman, if she were a, you know, a, a white man. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think, you know, it, that's, that's part of it. Um, another part of it is, um, you know, just really, um, really, really being able to, to have networks and, and, and support systems. Oftentimes domestic violence is really isolating. And so, um, you know, when, when we were in those shelters and also transitional homes and things like that, um, oftentimes, you know, we, we weren't actually able to, um, you know, to, to communicate with, with family, um, you know, who, uh, you know, who were, you know, basically putting us at, at risk of, of the abuser, you know, or former abuser finding out where, where, where we were. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we didn't have really that, those, those connections, um, you know, with extended family, um, for, for a long period of time. Um, you know, also you can't really have friends over and, you know, things like that. So I think, you know, being able to have a support network is, is, is really important. Um, and it, you know, I think a lot of these experiences drive a, a lot of the work that I do today. And I always approach everything that I do in global health from a gender lens. But you brought up something really interesting as well on really the intersectionality of inequality, right? Or equality. So it's not mm-hmm. just gender. Right. There's a lot of other layers to it. And so how do you really address all of those layers so that you can ensure that people have the same opportunities and that they are able to persist after such tragic situations occur? Yeah, a- absolutely. And I think um, there's a difference between the words equity and equality. Mm-hmm. And um, and, and, and I firmly believe in equity um, mm-hmm. in, instead of equality, because when when you talk about equality, equality, in, in, in my mind, is when you essentially give everyone the same. Right. But when you talk about equity, um, you're you're essentially giving people what they need to be able to, um, you know, to to have the opportunity to reach the same um the same sorts of, um, resources, you know, based on what their barriers are. Right. And, and so you're, you're, you're really creating a more tailored approach versus a one size fits all. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really the difference between that equity and equality. Yeah. I love the graphics that they have, like, (laughs) like at the baseball field, right. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where they have the different kind of steps for, you know, that's typically representing disability but it's it's across the different kinds of layers of barriers that exist and and yeah I mean I think that's such an important piece is that everybody does start at a different place and so how do you get there with the with exactly what a person needs yeah absolutely I was I was laughing too so interestingly my my husband also got his career start as an intern at the world food program so there's probably they probably have a whole uh, bank of stories of people who have started changing the world as a result of spending time there. So that's really, that's a, <laughs> I, that's a funny connection. Um, oh, I love that. So you eventually went on to, to start your own organization. I did actually. And, um, it, you know, and I'll, and I'll tell you, that was also quite a journey because essentially um, Girls Health Ed started from me just wanting to give back to my, my community. Um, and, and, and then I actually ended up, um, you know, really finding a lot of things that made me angry and uncomfortable. Um, and, and one of the things um, that, that, that I found was just a profound, I mean, just really profound lack of comprehensive sexuality education in schools. Um, 
so I ended up doing actually a research um, research project uh, that that tied into my thesis, um, and 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 that thesis and actually ended up being the the foundation for what Girls Health Ed uh, became ultimately became, and and so what I found essentially is that there were a lot of organizations focusing on reproductive health or STD prevention. Or they were focused on menstruation and, and, you know, and and at the time there, I mean, very, very few had had incorporated menstruation Um, or they were focused on the nutrition component or they were focused on kind of the life skills component or they were focused on gender based violence or, you know, intimate partner violence. But there were there were there were no programs at the time that brought all of those elements together in a um, comprehensive, holistic way. And so what ended up happening is that, um, you know, I, I found I found this information. It, it, it made me angry. It made me uncomfortable, um, and I just wanted to do something about it. And so I, I, I basically, you know, got together my smartest friends. Um, you know, a physician, um, educator, um, you know, youth empowerment uh, professionals, and you know, we we essentially just sat down and, and hashed out over a number of months um, the, a pilot curriculum for what would become Girls Health Ed. So essentially, uh, you know, at the time that um, I founded Girls Health Ed, it was, I mean, the HIV and AIDS rates in Washington, D.C. were actually comparable uh, to Sub-Saharan Africa and in in some countries in Sub-Saharan Africa in particular, was actually, if if you looked at just Ward 7 and 8, um, which which were majority black, um, black areas, they were in some cases higher per capita than in some countries in, in West Africa. And so, you know, what, what we really did was we wanted to tailor the curriculum to what the, the, the burden of disease was, uh, particularly in, in D.C., because that's where we piloted. Um, and then we actually ended up, um, you know, uh, using a, a, a train-the-trainer model and um, creating a program called the Teaching Fellow Program, where essentially – um, you know, those who were, uh, you know, uh, basically between 18 to about 30, 35 would get trained in our curriculum and then would be matched with a school or community center um, to essentially uh, teach the curriculum to a, a, a group of girls. Um, uh, and, and the girls that we serve are ages 8 to 18. Um, and so fast forward to today, um, you know, we ended up essentially scaling the the curriculum to reach 5,000 girls. Mm. Um, we're now in Washington, D.C. We're in New York. We're in Los Angeles and New Orleans. We're also in, in Kenya and about four areas in Kenya. And uh, we have a pilot in Bangladesh and, um, and also at the beginning stages of a pilot in India. And so, you know, one of the things that's really unique about Girls Health Ed um, is that, yes, the, the teaching fellow program, but also that the curriculum itself, you know, I, I think a lot of people, um, you know, especially in the United States assume, and, and, and not just the United States, I mean, a lot of high income countries assume that the issues that girls um, and that people in general face um, in high income countries are vastly different from the issues mm-hmm. <laughs> in LMICs, which oftentimes you know, especially if you look at intersectional inequality is not the case um, because oftentimes, you know, when, when you actually do look at, um, you know, minority health um, in, in the United States and, and in other high income um, settings, uh, then, then you, you essentially, you know, depending on where you are, 
have similar barriers um, that that those that those populations face as um, you would a low a lower middle income country. And actually, I was just listening to uh, Winnie Bianima speak, the head of UNAIDS, the other day. She was on a panel that that I um, was co-moderating, and she said a black child born in the United States is more likely to die before their first birthday than a child born in Libya. Wow. Um, yeah. And so, but it's, it's because of that reality that Girls Health Ed has essentially tailored our curriculum to be able to be adapted to any resource setting. And, um, and essentially what we do, um, kind of going back to that issue of equity and really tailoring solutions is we listen to the girls, listen to the, the, the healthcare professionals, um, listen to the educators, and we learn about what are the burdens of disease in that particular area who has requested the, the program. Um, and, and then we tailor the modules to, to essentially meet uh, the needs of the community. Um, and then the teaching fellows that we train are from those communities um, that, 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 that essentially are being served. You know, with, with Girls Health Ed, I really do see it as um, quite revolutionary because comprehensive health and sexuality education has the potential to really change social norms. You know, we, we talk about things like FGM. Um, you know, we tackle things like consent. We talk about um, you know, why, uh, why is menstruation happening in the body and, you know, and, and normalize it and normalize that conversation. And I'll just give an, like a quick example, um, b- before I, 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 kind of pause is in one of our courses, um, and, and, or essentially in, in one of our groups, there was a girl who was being bullied, uh, by, by a group of boys, um, about her period. And then a girl who had actually been through our workshops, um, ended up uh, stopping stopping the bullying um, in its tracks, and she actually used what she learned in the girls' health ed workshop uh, to to educate the boys about what periods are. Um, and the boys stopped making fun of uh, fun of the girl. And so, you know, I think it it just shows how powerful um, you know education is, and particularly comprehensive sexuality education. Um, to really changing social norms and creating healthier school and, and, and community environments for girls to enable gender equality. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I mean, and at the end of the day, right, like, okay, we're all women. We all need this same education knowledge. It doesn't matter whether you're a woman in Bangladesh or in Kenya or in Washington, D.C. It's w- w- the same thing are happening to our bodies, Right. Um, right. So I do think that in, in your approach of, you know, how do you tailor those solutions? How do you work with educators within the community to understand the cultural context or the stigma? I mean, I know some of the work that I do, like having a, a menstrual cycle is culturally thought of as you're impure or yep, that you exactly um, maybe had sex before marriage or there's yeah. all of these false beliefs around it. And so you're absolutely right. We have to normalize that conversation. And this is the, the normalization of it certainly requires those tailored community solutions and, and local educators to help deliver it. But the knowledge for everybody to have is the same. So it does make sense to me that you're in New York and DC and LA and Kenya and Bangladesh and India. I mean, in terms of that knowledge, and that's just really remarkable. 
And you know what? A lot of the girls that we serve in, in the United States, they're they're black and brown girls. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a lot of them come from immigrant communities or, um, you know, especially in, in Los Angeles, you know, we, we have a lot of um, Asian American girls and, and, and a lot of um, Latinx girls. And, um, you know, and, and so, it, you know, oftentimes they are actually girls, um, you know, who, who are from communities. We've, we've had uh, Somali girls and we've had, um, you know, girls, girls who, who come from Kenya, um, you know, so, so oftentimes, you know, they, they are actually from, um, you know, similar communities and, 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 and have similar issues, just like you said. And probably one of, one of the most important things about Girls Health Ed is that, so yes, of course, we're, you know, serving, serving girls eight to 18, but the young professionals, the, you know, the, the young women between ages 18 and, and 30 or 35, those, those young women are taking um, what, what they learn and what they experience through working with girls um, in, in Girls Health Ed, and they're taking it to larger organizations that they're a part of. You know, we have teaching fellows who are, you know, working at Pathfinder and, and PSI and, um, you know, multilateral agencies, and they're, they're, they're taking what they learn in the community um, to their to their work in in public health or to their work in education um, and, or, or you know to their work in, in government you know we, we also have had some teaching fellows who, who've taken that path so you know for us it's it's, it's really important that um, you know our, our teaching fellows also start to understand some of these issues and also really start to break down some of those um, you know very very colonial, um, outlooks on, 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 on global health and really seeing, you know, um, populations that, that they're working with as the other or seeing them as vulnerable, but really, really understanding that, you know, what, what we're doing in, in global public health is, um, you know, we're, we're, we are, we are providing tools, but, you know, these girls and these women, they're already powerful. It's just our job, um, you know, to, to essentially listen to them and, um, you know, help, help them, um, you know, uh, to, to, to be able to, to, to harness that, you know, that, that, that power that they already have, right. You know, we're, we're, we're not, um, in, in a way kind of, kind of giving anything, you know, and, and we shouldn't be prescribing or assuming, but we should always be listening. Um, and, and so that's what I hope that teaching fellows who work with girls health ed are able to take to their careers, um, you know, is this, you know, really, this this humility and this um, this idea of always listening, um, you know, to 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 girls and, and, and listening to women um, around the world, um, you know, that they are, you know, trying to um, trying to provide tools and, and, and resources for. Mm -hmm. uh, you just you just said so many important things. First of all, we should always be listening. I just want to pause for that. I think that that is so important and we should do that in so many ways in our community. And I think it is one big step to, towards that equity, right? We should be listening and they are already powerful. You're right. These girls are already powerful and sometimes just equipping the tools so that they can harness that power and feel confident about it is all that's really needed. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's also the same with, you know, this, um, I, you know, I've been hearing sometimes, and, and I think it's being said less and less, um, you know, be, because people are reali realizing that it's that it's not accurate. But, you know, giving a voice to the voiceless or, you know, we're, that's not what we're doing. 
we're just elevating the voices, um, you know, that 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 are already already speaking, right? But they they just need to be heard, right? They they need to have a seat at the table, and they need to be taken seriously. And that actually brings me to um, to what the work that I do now. So. With Girls Health Ed, I'm a proud uh, board member. I'm actually chair of the board, um, but we, we now have a really great new um, executive director named Pavita, um, and she's she's just so wonderful. She's been with the organization for more than six years, and um, you know she's uh, she's moved from being program director to now uh, leading, and you know she's doing such a great job. Um, and I'm and I'm really proud that I, I was able to be able to pass the baton, so to speak. Um, and the work that I do now is uh, with women in global health. And so, um, you know, some of those experiences that I talked about before in Ecuador, in Southeast Washington, and with Girls Health Ed, um, you know, that, that really led me to want to work on issues of gender equity within global health. Um, because one of the things that I found, and <laughs> I'll just talk about World Food Program for a second, I remember, you know, just sitting around the table and, um, you know, I, I was in a meeting at the World Food Program and, you know, of course I was, I was very junior, you know? <laughs> uh, but, you know, I was sitting around a meeting in, in a meeting and sitting around the table and, you know, there oftentimes, you know, there, there were a lot of men, <laughs> not mm-hmm. a lot of women. Mm-hmm. And there were, there were conversations that I remember being had, um, you know, conversations about girls, about women and, you know, maternal and child health. And there was one campaign that I worked on called the 1000 days campaign, um, which essentially, um, you know, about the, the, the nutritional needs that a child has, um, you know, during his or her, um, first 1000 days of life, um, and, and also the, the nutritional needs of the mother. And so, um, you know, I just remember sitting around a table and just really like being, being so shocked that, that there were, there were just things that you, that I would, I would think were obvious as, as a woman, um, that, that men were just completely overlooking, you know? And I, I just remember one time, um, uh, just kind of interjecting and, you know, saying, you know, by the way, you know, did you, <laughs> did you think of this? <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and, 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 and sometimes, um, it seemed like they hadn't and why, because there weren't enough women, um, who were actually at the table who had lived experiences to be able to, um, you know, to, 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 to have input and, 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 and make decisions. And so at Women in Global Health, our mission is really about, um, so it, it, it's verbatim, challenging power and privilege uh, for gender equity in health. And so um, what we're really about is ensuring that um, women have a seat at the table, um, and that we, we are able to achieve gender, gender parity in all aspects of health. Um, and in, in particular in the health sector, girls or, or not girls, but, uh, women in particular of, of, of working age <laughs> are, are 70% of the health workforce. Most of them are actually in low paid and low status roles. So, you know, they're nurses, they're midwives, they're, um, you know, really in, in these roles that are, that are at the front lines. Um, but in a, in a field where it's 70% women, you know, who are, who are the ones doing the work, it's only a quarter of women who are actually in, in leadership positions. That's crazy. Yeah. And, and it's also something that I noticed, you know, um, as I, as I kind of moved, um, moved up the career ladder, um, I, I noticed that there were fewer and fewer women while in, in my public health courses, there were, there were plenty of women, right? So, um, y- you know, it, it, just didn't make sense to me. The dichotomy was, was, was really stark and, um, and, and, and 
And as I had kind of described to you already, I had already experienced that, you know, in, in, in a lot of rooms that I was in and, you know, tables that I that I sat at, um, that there just weren't enough women and, and, and that actually weakened uh, the effectiveness of programs. And so the work that we do at Women in Global Health is really focused on getting women into leadership positions, um, and, and also how do we create the enabling environments for them to stay in these leadership positions? Um, how do we ensure that um, you know, they're, they're supported, that they have paid leave, um, that they have childcare, um, you know, that, they're, that, that, that they're also, um, you know, once they get to the table, that they actually have a say, um, and that it's not just window dressing, um, you know, but that it's, that it's meaningful engagement. Um, and then also looking at, you know, not just gender, but also the intersectional um, aspects, right? How do we ensure that, you know, it, you know, that that the women at the table are are, um, you know, not just white women? How do we ensure that women from, you know, from minority communities and, and high income countries or, you know, especially low and middle income country women um, are, are at the table, you know, who are actually from, um, you know, the the, the um places that, you know, we're, we're designing programs, um, you know, mm -hmm. for. So, and, and, and that's the other thing. So only 5% of, um, you know, women, uh, you know, who are, who are in, in leadership roles in global health um, are from a low or middle income country. And, and, and so the disparity gets, gets even, um, even worse, uh, you know, when you start to look at those intersectional barriers. So, that's, that's part of the work that we're doing. We're also looking at safe and decent working conditions for health workers um, because we know that they, they are, um, you know, majority women, that they're facing harassment. Oftentimes, personal protective equipment doesn't fit. You know, they're, they're also, um, you know, facing many other, many other barriers as well, um, you know, to, um, you know, to, to, to leadership, even, even within, um, you know, those, those roles, those, those clinical roles. We're also looking at the issue of unpaid work in health. Um, community health workers, for instance, are oftentimes unpaid or, or, or stipend-based. Um, and we know that community health workers are a majority women as well. Um, and and in, some, in some contexts, 90% of community health workers are women. And, and so essentially right now, global health is resting on the backs of, you know, uh, of, of, of poor women around the world. And you know, and this is the reality that that needs to change. Um, and, and so that's the work that we're doing at Women in Global Health. We really try to bring local reality to country level and global level decision making, um, you know, through gender equality. And, you know, and, and, and I think just, you know, from the experiences that I've had that that's really what's needed. That's really exactly um, what global health needs to be more equitable, um, to be much more effective um, and to, to really have the impact that we're trying to achieve. And you know, I always say without gender equality, without gender equity, uh, to be more specific, we'll never achieve health for all. Mm -hmm. um, because health for all means that we actually have a system that works for everybody. Um, and, and right now, that's not the case and will never be the case un unless we actually have um, equal representation in leadership to 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 ensure um, that 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 we will have a, a system that reflects the populations that it's trying to serve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, as a, as a woman who works in global health, I'm thankful to have you leading some of this, these conversations and thought process. And I, I totally agree. I mean, you know, you were, you're saying, talking about an enabling environment, and I was actually, as you were saying that, thinking back to how some of the descriptions of the enabling environments that you're 
you're advocating for and trying to create, I actually was thinking back to your mom and mm. how having those for her was so important for her to advance and to support her three children and the equal representation. I mean, when you think about that 70% of the workforce being women and then how misrepresented they are in the leadership. And, and then also, I mean, you know, creating solutions, creating programming, you can't solve a problem without the people that are facing it. Right. You oh, can't yeah. with it, without them at the table, without their voice, without, you know, them helping lead the solutions around it. And, and you're right. I think for so long that representation just really hasn't been there in the way that it needed to be to really get to, you know, how do you create a sustainable solution? Yeah. So I think that work is really, really important. And I'm so happy that you're one of those people that's leading it because you bring such a breadth of experience and knowledge and power to the conversations that, that are happening. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Kristen. But I just want to point out that it's that it's not about me. You know, it's not not about those of us who, um, you know, who are who are in, in the global secretariat. But it's also about our chapters. Um, who are the women who are leading the grassroots movement for um, women in global health and and, and on behalf of, of of these issues that I just mentioned? Um, who are around the world? So we have about twenty four chapters, um, and about half of them are based in um, low or middle income countries. And so Women in Global Health is a movement um, that's about 35,000 supporters strong. And it's led actually by, um, you know, women who are who are volunteers, um, you know, who are who are taking these issues on in their countries. And they're really building up uh, communities and, and, and networks um, to, to to tackle these challenges. And so, um, you know, I'll, I'll just um, kind of talk a little bit about one of our chapters um, that's actually in Zambia. So it, it's a brand new chapter, um, but I'm just really amazed at what they were able to do recently. And so they actually had a meet and greet um, where they actually brought together uh, several NGOs, they brought together ministries. Um, and so they actually brought together uh, someone at the director level in the Ministry of Gender um, and, and also uh, some representatives from the Ministry of Health. And, and so when the Ministry of Gender was presenting at this meet and greet, which um, I was able to call into, the Ministry of Gender, you know, the, 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 the representative um, was really just talking about how the, um, you know, the ministry just doesn't get uh, the funding or, or, or attention or agency that it really needs at the national level uh, to be able to drive change. And as she was presenting on so many of the issues that girls are facing, especially um, that are being exacerbated during COVID-19, like gender-based violence, um, you know, like in increased pregnancy because of decreased access to contraceptives and, you know, an increased uh, rape and, and things like that. You know, she was saying that, you know, essentially uh, because... The um, you know the the ministry is 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 not able to um, to essentially sit at a t at an equal uh, table with the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Education. Um, you know that you know that's that's part of the reason why some of these issues were not able to be um, addressed in you know in, in in the way that they really should be. Um, you know which which is in a cross sectoral way. And so um, it, it was just such an amazing thing to see the women in global health. Um, chapter being able to kind of facilitate these dialogues between and, and among ministries because now that the Ministry of Health has heard 
the Ministry of Gender talk about these issues, now they can they can uh, you know take the issues that they're working on in the Ministry of Health and approach them with a gender lens, right? Mm. Um, and 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 otherwise, those those ministries might not have had um, you know that 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 chance to really have that that open dialogue um, that was driven by the Women in Global Health chapter, and so. You know, I, I, I just think that our chapters around the world are just doing such amazing work, you know, and, and I think from where I sit, um, I'm, I'm just happy to support them in any way that I can, um, because this is really the work that needs to happen. It's not just what, about what we're doing at the global level, but it's also um, about what our chapters are doing at the country level. And we just really want to, um, you know, to elevate their voices and support them as much as we possibly can. That's awesome. That's a great story. And you it's you wouldn't even think that the government needs all this help to sort of make those connections right to figure out how you work across the sectors sometimes having that you know external group bringing bringing it all the pieces together and having that lens on it is incredibly helpful so that's a great story about the work that you all are doing and i wouldn't even call it help you know so, sometimes it's just you know it, it it's just about a civil society organization um, you know, who, who represents, um, you know, the, 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 essentially the voice of the people. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think sometimes that, that external pressure is just the catalyst that that's needed to drive change. Um, and, you know, just from having started, you know, a civil society organization to having, you know, wor- worked in a couple, um, you know, I, I didn't even mention the <laughs> nonprofits that I, that, that, that I also worked in, um, you know, here in the U S and, and globally, um, you know, before, but, you know, just, just having, having worked in, in nonprofits and, and in CSOs, um, I can just say that, you know, the power of organizations that, that are truly people driven and, and people led, um, is just truly phenomenal. And, and, and I think we're just starting to tap into the power of, of, of CSOs. Mm-hmm. Catalyst. That's, that's a great word for it. Okay, so two fun things. So first of all, you were Miss District of Columbia. (laughs) Oh, you dug that up. (laughs) It does show up on the internet. And (laughs) so I just have to know more about this. (laughs) Yeah, sure. So um, I I ended up um, uh, competing for um, Miss DC uh, because... So okay, so there, there there were actually kind of three times that I competed, um, and I'll and I'll tell you a funny story about each of them. So uh, the first time I ever competed um, was when a board member of the Miss DC, um, which is which was the um, state affiliate for the Miss America pageant, okay. um, she actually ended up finding me on Facebook, and she had mistaken me for a contestant that year, um, and I said, you know that's that's quite flattering but <laughs> i'm not the person that you're looking for uh and and she said well you know that's okay because we're still accepting applications for for contestants and so i really think you should apply and <laughs> and and i talked to some people i trusted and i said you know i i never really saw myself as a as a pageant type you know i was always, I was always and how very old were you oh my goodness i was actually in i was in my third year of undergrad okay um and so, uh, so, so at the time, um, you know, I was like, you know, not, not even thinking about this. Um, and, and so my friends encouraged me to do it. So I, I ended up doing it. Um, I ended up competing that year and I didn't end up winning, but I ended up getting an award. Um, and, 
and essentially I, I was actually approached a second time after that. And I wasn't planning on competing again. I said, okay, you know what? That was a fun experience. Great. <laughs> uh, don't need to do that again. Um, but you know, I ended up being approached a second time and, um, and I ended up competing in, um, in, in a different pageant, but, but for the same title for, um, for, for the, uh, America's Miss District of Columbia. And I ended up, I ended up winning, um, the, the state title that year. And, um, and then, uh, you know, essentially had a blast with it. Uh, I, I thought it was just such a great opportunity because, um, you know, it, it helped me, um, get things like speaking appearances and, and really talk about the issues I cared about. And at that time, um, you know, I, I was kind of on the, at the beginning stages of starting Girls Health Ed. And so it, it did allow me to be able to meet some great people, um, you know, who could support, uh, Girls Health Ed and, um, what, what we were starting. And, and, and also I got to meet some, some pretty cool people. I, I, I got to meet, um, uh, President Barack Obama, um, and uh, First Lady uh, Michelle Obama. I also got to meet the the, the president-elect uh, Joe Biden and um, and Dr. Jill Biden, um, second uh, uh, or, or well now soon to be First Lady, uh, but at the time Second Lady. Um, and and so it afforded me some really cool experiences. And um, you know, and and I think through through uh, being um, America's Miss DC, I was also able to um, you know to do things like talk to um, school kids in the community about self-confidence and about body image and, you know, about, um, you know, o overcoming some of the challenges that, that, that they were facing that I had, I had also faced. And so, um, you know, so I, I think it gave me a, a platform, uh, to be able to do some of the, the community work that I, I really wanted to, to be able to give back and to also be able to launch, uh, Girls Health Ed, um, you know, in, 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 in a way that was impactful. So, so it, it was a fun experience and uh, wouldn't, wouldn't trade it for the world. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And yeah. then you also had another unique experience. So you launched an app called She Wins. I, I did. Okay. Tell me <laughs> a little bit about this because this led you to Shark Tank. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yes, I yes. need to know so, more about this too. <laughs> I, I almost forgot about that. You, and, and you do, you do your research. So. <laughs> I ended up in, in, in 2014, um, getting together with, um, with, with two good friend, friends of mine, um, who are both doing the, the master public health program, um, at, at, at GW. And, uh, and, and one of my friends, um, had actually, uh, you know, w wanted us to apply, uh, for this business plan competition at the university. And, you know, and, and she said, you know, I think it's a great opportunity. And, and, you know, we, we had been talking about, uh, essentially doing something that, um, that, that, that would benefit millennial women on campus. Um, because, you know, I, I talked to them about, uh, girls health ed. I, I talked to them about the, the lack of, um, information, um, you know, that, that, that I had experienced, uh, kind of just about my body, um, you know, as a, as, as, as a, as a girl and then as a young woman. And, and we said, well, what if we were able to create a tool, um, and create a platform where millennial women could get information about their, um, sexual and reproductive health, um, and, and actually talk to healthcare professionals anonymously, uh, through an app. Hmm. And, and, and so, yeah, this so is like we, telehealth before telehealth was really a thing, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, 
Uh, yeah. So we there. I mean, um, you know, these, these terms were kind of thrown around and there were some, you know, folks working on it, but it wasn't as, as widespread as it is now. And so, you know, we we at the time, you know, we all had public health backgrounds, um, you know, but not, none of us were, were clinicians. And, um, you know, one of the co-founders actually did end up going to, to med school later. Um, but, uh, you know, we were really just thinking about how to monetize it and how to, you know, make it sustainable and viable. Um, but then also how to ensure that that it was something that uh, followed HIPAA, um, HIPAA compliance, um, because that that was, you know, a really big challenge for us is really ensuring that we were able to um, to, to provide this innovative service, um, but also ensure that it was compliant with, um, you know, a, a lot of these regulations that, um, you know, just weren't built uh, for, 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 um, for systems like this. And so, you know, we, we, we had some challenges, I, I would say, um, you know, just, just kind of ensuring that we could build something that, that didn't meet all these requirements and that also was able to be, um, to be profitable. Um, so we, we actually ended up, um, you know, doing quite a few customer surveys. We, we ended up, um, you know, uh, drawing up some, some wireframes. Um, you know, we, we also ended up putting together, um, you know, a, a business plan where we would essentially have health insurers and, and, and have, um, you know, um, healthcare professionals who were in private practice advertise, um, you know, ab about their services on, on the app. Um, we, we also wanted to have, um, advertisements from, from, um, from drug companies, you know, we, we, we thought that might be a, a way to, to monetize without selling patients data because that was against HIPAA compliance. But then we, we, we were like, well, how do we pay the healthcare providers who are going to be providing information, um, you know, anonymously? And also how do we ensure that, that, that they are, that, that they're comfortable signing up um, you know, because of course, when you when you provide information, then all of a sudden you're exposed to liability, right? So we we had to ensure that that it was something that the healthcare providers felt comfortable signing up for. Mm -hmm. um, and and so you know, we we ended up you know finding some 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 um, some solutions to some of these challenges. Um, but ultimately, you know, we just we we ended up um, we ended up kind of. Um, you know, persisting for, for a while, we, we ended up pitching to Shark Tank, we ended up making it to the final round of Shark Tank, up until the point where we got like, um, like a 100 page stack of paperwork uh, to apply before we actually were, were, were gonna, um, you know, be in that next round where, where you'd essentially go on air. Um, and we ended up saying no, we ended up not not wanting to do it. Um, Shark Tank actually ended up having a ton of, um, a, a, a ton of, um, really, really just kind of, uh, shady clauses that, that we had to sign about, you know, potentially, um, you know, not, not having full ownership of RIP and, you know, basically if there's a deal that that's made on the show that you might not be able, you know, that, that might not be reflective of the actual deal that's made. And, you know, we just, we didn't feel comfortable kind of moving to that stage without having some of those other questions answered, um, that I, that I just talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, so we, it, it did end up making to the finalists. Um, we, we did end up saying no, um, and then we continued to work on she wins. Um, but, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, um, money was, was, was just a big challenge for us because, um, you know, to, to build something that was going to be compliant, um, you know, and, 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 and was also going to be able to, um, to meet a lot of the requirements that, 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 that were, that were necessary. Um, we just needed a, a lot more capital than we were able to raise. Um, but I always say that having, you know, having tried something and failed is, so much better than not having tried at all. So, 
Um, I'm, I'm just so grateful to have been able to work with such incredible women. I'm proud to say that we were all women of color. Um, you know, one of my co-founders was Iranian American, another was Pakistani American, um, you know, and we were just such a girl power team. And I'm, I'm really delighted to have been able to work with them and to have had that experience. Um, and who knows, maybe, maybe someday, uh, I'll, I'll be a co-founder of, uh, some other type of, type of app or (laughs) health, health platform again in the future. Well, that's awesome. And I feel like, I mean, the way you described it, there's clearly a lot of things you learned that from oh yeah launching that that you've taken forward with you in your career and you should be really proud of it. It doesn't sound like a failure to me, but I, I hear what you're saying about it didn't kind of ultimately come to fruition, but that's really, thanks for sharing that story. Yeah. You know, and, and I always say I, um, you know, since then I've, I've been able to have judged some, um, some startup competitions and, um, you know, and, and, and pitches and things like that. And I also, I always say, um, you know, oftentimes it, you know, it's, it, it's not your first idea. Um, that's, that's the one that, that ultimately makes it oftentimes, you know, it's maybe your second or third idea, you know, and, and, and it is really entrepreneurship and especially social entrepreneurship is all about listening and it's all about learning. And I think just, just one kind of, to bring it back to that one point, um, the thing that we did the most was listen, we, we listened to our, you know, base of customers, um, or, or potential customers, uh, we, we really listened to healthcare providers, um, you know, who, who we wanted to join. We also, um, you know, tried, tried our best to listen to, um, you know, to, to those who, who are our mentors and advisors who gave us feedback. And, and, um, you know, I think that's just really part of any journey is, um, learning how to listen. And I'm still trying to, you know, just continue to learn how to be a better listener. That's awesome. Sarah, you have had such an incredible career and you're doing really, really important work. And I really appreciate you sharing your journey so far. I mean, you have, I can't wait to see and follow you and see where you go and how you transform the global health space and beyond. So thanks so much for being here today with me. Oh, thank you so much, Kristen. It's, it's been such a pleasure. Um, and, and, and I, I look forward to staying in touch and, uh, to, to being able to, uh, to, to hear from you as well and, uh, and, and the work that you're doing. Um, cause I think that, you know, we, we, as women, we all need to support each other and, um, you know, and, and also build our own, you know, girls network. So, yes. uh, so, <laughs> so looking forward to, to, to being in touch and, uh, you know, supporting, supporting you however I can. Thanks. And we, in, in the show notes, I will, and I will tag and put links to all of your work so that, our listeners can go learn more about that. I just want to bring you to now our end of podcast questions. Mm -hmm. Um, So my first question is you represent somebody who illuminates in your life and in your community and your work. Who's somebody who illuminates for you? Mm, Does the person need to be dead or alive? Either. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Somebody who, who just you think has or, or had illuminated in their life. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, so, uh, I, I actually have three women, um, who, who I'd like to, to, to highlight. Um, so the first is of course my mom, you know, I think she showed tremendous strength and and resilience, um, you know, through a lot of the challenges that she's faced. So she's definitely somebody who illuminates and, you know, I see her as, um, as a, a source of strength and inspiration. The second person I would say, um, is, um, Maya Angelou, 
Um, I, I was really sad that I never got to meet her uh, before she passed. But, you know, as, as somebody who has um, used poetry and, and has used writing as a way to to, to heal, um, you know, I think she's just such such a light. And, um, you know, uh, when, when I listen to some of her pieces, sometimes, you know, I just cry because I think she's, she's just so amazing. And, um, and, you know, she, she'll live on forever, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, so she's, she's definitely somebody that I've always looked up to and admired. And, um, and then third, I would say, uh, Kamala Harris, I have followed her since, you know, she became, um, California's attorney general. Um, I followed her, her Senate race. And then, you know, of course now she's VP elect. Um, you know, I follow her throughout her campaign and, um, and I just have to say, I mean, she's just so graceful and, um, you know, she, she's somebody who always carries her head high and despite the vicious attacks that, that, that she's had, um, you know, throughout her career, you know, she just, she just stays above it all. And, and, and I think somebody like her, um, you know, somebody who's just, she just keeps laughing and she just keeps smiling and she keeps dancing regardless of, of, of these things that, that she's been through and, and the things that people say about her. And I think that's just so admirable. You know, she's just, she's a teacher of joy. Um, and, and, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what she'll achieve in this, um, you know, in, in these next four and hopefully eight years. Yeah. Oh man. All three of those women. So incredible. Oh yeah. Give me a book recommendation. Yeah. So the book I always recommend, um, or that, that I, I recommend for people who are interested in gender equality in particular, gender equality and health, um, is half the sky. Um, and I, I, I'm always shocked when, when people tell me that they haven't read it because I'm like, you have to read this oh, book. It's so good. <laughs> it's I totally so good. agree. Yes. Uh, and, and, and I think especially if you work in gender equality and or global health and, and it's by, um, Nick Kristoff and, um, Cheryl, Cheryl Wu Dunn, um, and they're, they're a husband and wife duo. And, um, and I think Nick Kristoff, so he, he's of course a, um, a, a, a New York times, um, author, um, and, and, and journalists and, and, um, and, and Cheryl Wu Dunn, um, you know, is a, is, is a businesswoman, I believe, but, you know, they, they just did such a great job illuminating the stories, speaking of illuminate, <laughs> illuminating the stories of, of, of women around the world. And, you know, really also driving that point home that, you know, women, you know, no matter where they are, you know, they, they, they face very similar structural challenges. And so, um, that, that book I think is just super educational and it's also inspiring. I, I just think it's so well done. Um, and then a second book recommendation, uh, I love this book called the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> such a great book. Don't let the title, um, scare you away. Um, and, and I'm normally not a person to use profanity, but this book is just so excellent because it, it, it really talks about um, you know, how, how we get in our own way and, um, you know, how, how we can essentially stop caring so much, um, about, um, about what other people think and also about, um, you know, what, what, what our, what our fears are, you know, and, 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 and we can essentially just care more, um, about things that are important to us. So it's, it's essentially about choosing where, where to care, right? Like where, you know, choosing in your life, where to give a fuck. And, and I think the underlying thesis is like, you know, we can't, we can't care about everything. And among those things we shouldn't care about is, you know, what, what people think. And, you know, we, we shouldn't care so much about failing um, because ultimately 
what we should care about are the things that are important to us and what's important to us, um, you know, ultimately, even if we are afraid, um, overcomes those, those, those things that aren't right. Like, you know, like, um, our fear of failure. So I, it, it's just such a good book. And I think it, um, you know, just, just really came to me at such a great point in my life. And so I recommend it to everybody. That's great. I think that actually ties back to what you were saying about Kamala being a teacher of joy. So maybe that's like being a, a consumer and then eventual teacher of joy by knowing how to prioritize Oh, totally. What you're spending totally. your, your mind on. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And my last question, Sarah, is what is your message for the world? Mm, my message for the world? That's a big, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that, 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 that's not something I think about until, um, until I'm like, you know, thinking about my, my, my tombstone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but, but I'll, I'll try. Um, Let's see. So I think my, my message to the world is um, there, there is nobody who's fearless. There are just people who've chosen uh, to prioritize something else over their fear. Right. And so um, there was never a time where, 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 you know, I, I, I did something huge um, that didn't terrify me. Of course, things terrify me. Um, and, and I think everybody uh, gets terrified at some point in their life. And, you know, ultimately when we kind of are growing and, and we move on to the next phase of growth in our life, we're going to be scared. And so the way to, the way to essentially overcome that fear is just to recognize that there's something that's more important than, than your fear or than your, um, you know, self-consciousness or than your lack of self-worth. Right. You know, and, and, and I think ultimately by doing one thing that scares you, um, every week, um, you know, or, you know, every month, um, that ultimately, um, helps to, helps to bring you closer, um, to like the person that, that you want to be. So that, that's my message is just really, um, you know, do things that scare you. And, and, and I think that's, that's why in my career I have been able to, um, you know, to, to, to do things that, 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 that some people, you know, may think that they, they need to wait their whole careers to do, um, but I, I have been able to do things that, 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 that were, um, you know, out of the ordinary because I, um, you know, was, was, was able to, um, to just do something that scared me. And I was able to, you know, put, put the fear aside and say that, um, you know, what I was working on was more important than the fear that was trying to hold me back. So, um, yeah, so my message is, you know, just do something that scares you. And, and, and that's something can be as small as, um, you know, writing, writing a piece or, you know, um, you know, maybe doing doing something like this, doing this podcast interview, you know, for, for, for some people that might be scary or, you know, just saying yes. Um, and, and, you know, I think just, you know, that 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 one word, like just saying yes or, you know, just just doing something that 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 scares you once enables you to um, to, to do other things that scare you. Thank you, Sarah, for being here today, for sharing your wisdom, your story teaching us how not to fear and to take risks. And thank you everybody who joined us today. You can follow us on Instagram at the illuminate podcast. If you loved this episode, please share it with your friends. Leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks and have a wonderful week.